Welcome to the Shooting Times podcast, which is brought to you by Field Sports Press. I'm joined this week by Simon Barr, the CEO of Field Sports Press, who I believe has just come back from Iceland. Is that right, Simon? I have, yes. My second trip this year. First was for the spring salmon run. Uh, not that successful this year. I was a little bit early, but we had good success for some slightly later fish. Uh, and I also had the opportunity to go and hunt a reindeer, which was a great experience. Have you told your, your young children that you were, um, that you were slaying reindeer? <laughs> I have actually, um, they seem pretty cool about it. They've grown up with that. So, um, they've seen all sorts of weird and wonderful things come through the door at various points. So it's not something they're particularly bothered about. Well, we might get onto that again later on in the episode, but this week we're focusing on uh, really quite a lot of interesting news stories, as we always do in this podcast. Um, we're focusing on the 30th of August issue, uh, so it'll be with you on Wednesday on your on your doorstep. Um, if you're not a subscriber already, we've got a very good subscription offer on at the moment, which comes with fully comprehensive insurance, the sort of thing that you need if you're going to be shooting this season, the sort of thing that everyone should have, actually, um, whether you go to shoots where you need it or not. That covers really everything you could possibly want, Simon, right? And, and yeah. it competes with any other insurance out there. Uh, well, we're, we're not trying to compete with any other insurance. We just think it's a great opportunity to get people a combined subscription and insurance offer. Um, it takes you up to £2 million of public liability and covers shotgun, air rifle and rifle-based activities. Yeah. So it's um, it will cover you for uh, any activity in the field um, from a public liability point of view. Well, I think as a magazine, we are trying to compete with every other magazine out there and we do uh, lead the way, as we have done for over 140 years now. Quite right, too. While you were casting a fly into the cold Icelandic water, there were all sorts of things going on. The Scottish government announced that they are launching a six-week consultation on a ban on snaring. Um, now, Wales, I think it was late June when they banned snaring, and Scotland always likes to feel that they're sort of keeping up when it comes to, to, to banning things. Simon, as you well know, as a person in Scotland, they really go in for banning things in Scotland. Yes, and taxing it, us more as well. <laughs> it's... Um, it's a very easy PR win. Snaring really is up there with sort of, you know, kicking your children in terms of things that people get upset about and feel that you definitely shouldn't do. I mean, actually, I was quite interested. So there was a, an anti-shooting group who said that 76% of people in Scotland support a ban on snaring. I have to say that I'm actually surprised that it's as low as that. I think if you walk down George Street or Princess Street, of course, Scotland's two great shopping streets, and you said to people, what do you think of snaring foxes? What do you reckon, Simon? I think yeah. it would go down pretty... Yeah, I have to say there is quite a um, a nucleus of field sports friendly people in Edinburgh as a city. But, um, you know, it's how you present the headline. And, and similarly with the trophy import ban, you can present it in such a way to get anybody to follow what you want them to um, without the context, without science. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's it's playing to the crowd. It's a political win, as was the trophy import ban. The, tro the trophy import ban, that, that's actually developed in the time you were away as well. And we'll go on to that. That's a really interesting one. But I think with, with snaring, it's one of those ones where, you know, I spent a bit of time with a keeper a couple of years ago now. And he said to me, look, if we ban snaring, great partridge conservation in this country would be very, very difficult. And his point was that basically when crops get up, uh, you can't control foxes effectively because you just can't see them. You know, you can't shoot through fields of wheat, um, but you can snare and snares work you know, 24 hours a day. You have to check them every morning uh, is, is, is best practice. And I think the other 
point, which is essential, is that snaring has changed an awful lot. So you had the sort of old-fashioned uh, kind of you know, Edwardian snares. And if you type in snaring into Google, you'll come up with some pretty horrific images. But just this morning, actually, uh, we're recording this on a bank holiday Monday and going onto the GWCT website on a bank holiday and watching videos of Mike Swan is the sort of thing that I like to do. I was watching him this morning explaining how far snares have come. So humane cable restraints, as they're now called, and that's not just sort of, you know, a bluff. I mean, that's very much what they are. They so have po- two- positive hyperbole to suit a cause. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they really genuinely are. So they have two swivels. You can sort of move within them if you're a fox caught in one. Um, and they also actually have a, a breakaway device. So if a badger or something which is, is much stronger than a fox gets stuck in one, then it can pull its way out. And then that they're free running as well. So what's really interesting is that when the GWCT use these snares to catch foxes and they uh, put radio collars on them, they find that sort of a year or two years later, they're catching the same fox in a snare. So what they've deduced from this is that the fox isn't left with sort of trauma and this great fear of, of snares uh, in the way that people might suppose, which is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that at all. But what, what do you think the outcome will be of the oh, six week? snaring? There'll yeah. be a ban on snaring. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I would just like to put it to those who are sort of agitating for a ban on snaring. I think if you said to them, tell me about the difference between old fashioned snares and humane cable restraints, I think they would look at you as though they had no idea what you're talking about. Uh, you know, it's one of those ones where really people need to understand before they take a view on it. And that leads us on, I think, very interestingly to Therese Coffey. Uh, saying that ministers are working hard to pass a law banning the import of animal trophies. I was wondering, Simon, are you going to be bringing your your reindeer back? With, did you bring your reindeer back? With you? No, I, I didn't. It wouldn't. Um, it's not a CITES listed species, so under the current um, laws, I would be able to bring it back. Oh, really? Ship it back. Yeah. Um, there would be no restriction. But under the proposed trophy import ban, it would be something I would really? be able to do. Um, and tell me, as a you know, I've I've not. Uh, ever had a trophy on my hands but what's the you know i mean if you if you if you listen to the news or rather if you go on social media you're told that it's all men with uh small genitalia who want to bring back the heads of buffaloes we perhaps won't won't get into that but what's the um what's the what is the appeal when it comes to trophies as somebody who has has hunted various species that would be affected um what is the appeal of trophy hunting Mm, mm. um that is a very far-reaching philosophical question, um, which is probably a whole podcast in itself. Um, but what I think we should talk about is the benefit of trophy hunting. In, which is huge. Which is huge. And it's, yeah. it's scientifically proven uh, to put a huge amount of income into places and value on the animal's heads, yeah. um, which um, provides vital conservation projects, anti-poaching, um, monitoring, um, local people get cash from the trophy hunters coming to uh, whichever country it is. Very often they are building schools, wells. I've been involved in hunted all over the world and seen some amazing projects which have been solely funded um, through animals being shot. It's always mature males. They're always past breeding age. Um, a trophy hunter will want to shoot something typically with um, you know larger horns, larger antlers, um, and those are the animals that aren't necessarily part of the breeding herd anymore um, and therefore uh, there's a surplus and if that surplus can provide vital income to put value on those animals that are left mm-hmm. uh, it can only be a good thing and you know the it was both parties voted to ban trophies 
Uh, yeah. And I think it's yeah. got stuck in the Lords because the Lords have turned around and said, hang on a minute. Yeah. Um, there's no science backing up this. And I think they've also said it's, it's poorly written um, legislation. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I was watching a very interesting video a while ago of students at the University of Windhoek. Uh, so in Namibia, young Namibians saying that, you know, it should be up to the people of Namibia how they want to manage their wildlife. It yeah, shouldn't sort be of- dictated to them. Which is really interesting. You it's get, a sort of postmodern colonialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are telling people how yeah. they should be managing their wildlife. Yeah, it's um, the sort of sensibilities of people over here uh, being privileged over you know the lives and livelihoods of yeah. people over there, and you know being privileged over the the conservation success or otherwise. Of, um, and there's a there's a, a wildlife management piece as well. There are no predators in Iceland where I just was. As mm. there are none in in that are big enough to kill um, red deer, they need yeah. to be managed. And in order yeah. to have a healthy herd, you need to manage selectively to do that. Um, yeah. If someone that wants to be part of the selection process wants to keep the horns, stick them on their wall, have a rug, eat the meat, um, and it provides a you know a, a, a benefit to the flora and fauna wherever the species is that they've they've hunted it. What, what's not to like? Of course, what's not to like is you know shooting the cast of the lion king is quite an emotive topic mm, even if it mm. does good for the for the rest of the population so I, I completely um you know there's very few people that big game hunt outside of the uk now it's can you just answer answer a uh, uh one one vaguely philosophical point just before we move on to uh, scottish water and kind of bring it all back home which is that you always see it said that people like to hunt because it makes them feel big and powerful and I actually think you know shooting things like snipe or woodcock you know here makes you realize that in many ways you're f- inferior to these things that you're hunting you know they have a better sense of sort of wild places than you do you know how does that figure when you go over to somewhere like Iceland do you come back feeling kind of small and know as though the world is this massive place and you're just a tiny tiny part of it how does that yeah work? I mean look it's for, for me personally it's about uh, the experience I've hunted all over the world and it's taken me to some remarkable places that i wouldn't have visited had i not been going there to hunt the trigger yeah. pool is a tiny tiny part of a one-week trip it might mm, be a two-week mm. trip i went to the himalayas for 21 days and pulled the trigger twice yeah. which actually yeah. represents a very small part of it but i had a 21 um sized group of sherpas following all being paid by me to come and support the hunt um and uh, the opportunity to do things like that it, it's 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 adventure it is getting out into the wilds and going and reconnecting with things that we evolved to do and again it's such a big philosophical topic yeah um i don't have a huge amount of trophies on my wall um but they are they are representative of the experience so when i look at something that's on my wall it reminds me of the amazing experience and the amazing place and the amazing other wildlife i saw when i was there Mm. um so you know it's it's does it make me feel big or small? I hadn't. I'd just the con- same size. Never you considered it that way. But I, f- I feel um, better travelled, and I feel as though I've had um, uh, significantly better travel. I've had some really amazing natural experiences yeah. in the wild, and I think that's what draws me to it. Is is you know the overall experience, not just pulling the trigger, because you can yeah. do that on a clay pigeon or on a um, uh, paper target. So, well, if you can get Therese Coffee, who's head of Defra, to go with you on your next adventure we will definitely run a long feature on it possibly even seven pages i don't think she'd make it up the hills in iceland uh it was quite arduous so um we'll see well we'll see we can ask her um closer to home scottish water have followed 
United Utilities in saying that they are going to launch a consultation, which is slightly more grown up than what United Utilities said about grouse shooting on their ground. Um, it then emerged that they've actually only got one grouse shooting license on their ground. It's interesting that they followed suit and that they're, that they're going to do that. So this a PR, is in the Angus... a PR topic more than anything. Exactly, sort of exactly. And good PR versus bad PR. I mean, the consultation is probably the right way to do it rather than just saying that's it, all out ban. Uh, the fact that they've sort of said it, but they've only got one person who's affected. And I believe that that person actually has this license because they, they sold an estate, had a bit of ground that butted onto it. So it's not sort of, it's a relatively small area. Um, you probably know the Angus Glens quite well. Were you you were up not far from there the other day? Yeah, which is I where just, bit of actually, I was. I'm a Purdy Award judge, and I was with D Ward. Uh, oh, his, really? Yeah, he, he, yeah, yeah, he was part of it last year, um, and came second, I believe, um, in the Purdy yes, Awards. Yes, that is right. Uh, and so, yes, I visited him there, and it, what he does there is is phenomenal for conservation and mm. biodiversity. It's a masterclass, really, in the Angus Glens. It was amazing to see all the projects and things that yeah um, he's done he's, a lot there for black grouse i think and waders he's very into and, and he said actually to us that he worries that you know, the abundant wader populations will not be looked after uh if this if this grouse shooting license is withdrawn uh, and you've got places like glen prosen which was one of the bigger states there uh bigger than the than the amount of ground there was it deep. recently sold wasn't it it was sold to forestry and land scotland which is the 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 new name um for forestry commission scotland and that's sixteen and a half thousand acres and, and it was plan, a fabulous grouse moor and there was, it was a huge yeah, yeah. And one of the sort of greats and uh the plan is reportedly to cover it in trees so that's going to be something that we and they'll flatten, quite the, flatten the deer you know that's well yeah, it could be a dead zone, you know. They could, yeah. they could plant it responsibly. They could put the right trees in the right places, but we will definitely watch that with interest. So there was another thing. I, I know, Simon, that you're very keen on flying a drone. Is that... <laughs> is that... Yeah. Uh, I think they, they help to create fabulous pictures uh, for the magazines. We only use in the UK drones under 250 grams. Um, oh, really? Legal requirement. Yeah, there's a legal requirement. Why is that? Because if they hit someone, they can no, cause... You need, there, there's various different civil aviation authority like you to have licenses if you're using it commercially um, above a weight of 250 grams. So, of course, anything we ever use is 249 grams. Um, yeah. But they yeah. are... Uh, to think of some of the stuff we've been able to capture for content for magazines and for video... Yeah. Um, Ten years ago, it would have been a helicopter, and and yeah. now we can do it yeah. with a drone that's no bigger than a than an iPhone. Frankly, I'm amazed they use helicopters at all actually anymore. If you think what drones can do, but there was a news story last week that an Edinburgh-based uh, conservation consultancy or ecology consultancy rather um, is now using drones to work out how many deer there are on a bit of ground and also boar as well, which is a really interesting thing. I think up yeah. on um lewis actually last year on lewis and harris or possibly two years ago now they did a big study across the island that was using helicopters hugely expensive um but they found that there were people who really were pretty far out in terms of the number of deer they thought they had so some people had far more deer than they thought uh, and others had far less deer than they thought but it's just interesting the way that technology is is, yeah, I mean, is the, changing you know, the, something the, as traditional in a sense as deer management yeah i think drones are, are fantastic uh, and relatively inexpensive compared to a helicopter um, mm. you could have an operator or a series of operators um, with drones to go and do a deer survey probably in a quicker period of time than you would with a helicopter and for far less so you know it's using and if technology. you crash the drone it's not as much of a uh, of an issue as if you're you know sitting there in your in your helicopter 
yeah, well, let's hope there aren't any helicopter crashes on the accounts. That's all we need. I was very interested. We got Owen Williams to write the story for us. Owen Williams is a very good artist, a, a real enthusiast in terms of woodcock conservation. He does an awful lot for woodcock conservation. Um, but he also is the president of the GWCT in Wales. Uh, and the Welsh Game Fair has gone from strength to strength. Uh, last year, I managed to drive to the old site of the Welsh Game Fair, actually, rather than the new site. And uh, I had I 20 minutes before I was meant to get on stage. And I got there and I thought, this is really quiet. And I did a little bit of Googling and I realized I was actually at the other end of the country entirely. But uh, I have a plan to be back there this year. And I, I sort of, hopefully I won't make that same mistake again. It is a different location, by the way. So, oh, um, is it? Yeah. So just make, I, sure, I, you, I you, wrong again. make sure you put the right uh, postcode into your satellite yeah. before you set um, off. But Owen Owen Williams was uh, was 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 saying in this week's issue that he's really struggled to get Welsh politicians to engage with the game fair, and that the crazy thing in Wales is that they've got a very rural population. Uh, historically, they had a lot of hunting that went on, they had a lot of fishing that went on, they had a lot of woodcock shooting that went on, but. Um, he hasn't managed to get Welsh politicians to say they'll come. And if you go to the game fair here, you see a lot of politicians there. The attorney general was there. Um, Therese Coffey didn't turn up, which was very disappointing at the game fair uh, at Ragley Hall. But he was saying, you know, more more than ever, they need Welsh politicians to engage with, with rural Wales. And of course, this comes not long after Mark Drakeford uh, said that the Welsh government does not support shooting for sport but when it comes to selling game meat, that's a different issue. <laughs> How you have the latter without the former is... Um, well, unless they start to farm game birds like poultry. Farm, and, farm partridges, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you, re- you remove the shooting element to it, which... Yeah. You, you remove a very important business for people in rural areas. Quite right. Um, but so hopefully, you know, hopefully they'll... Um, he'll manage to make some headway with that, but the fact he, he hasn't, it's good to shine a light on that. Um, we have a series, Simon, that we run in Shooting Times, which is called 100 Years of Keepering. So we have two keepers who who write that for us. Dave Whitby is one of them. Um, and then Lawrence Catlow is the other, both sort of real veteran keepers, very much respected within the keeping community and quite outspoken guys. Uh, so they write about everything, how, you know, how the role of the gamekeeper's wife has changed is quite, is quite interesting. Um, you know, all the gamekeepers, Huston, actually, have got a few gamekeepers uh, now who are women, but uh, also trapping and so on. But Dave Whitby has written this week about who would want to be a gamekeeper now. Uh, and it looks at the challenges that, that keepers face. I mean, it was really interesting. So in 1851 in England and Wales, there were seven and a half thousand gamekeepers. And in 1911, there were 1,200 gamekeepers in Norfolk alone, which is crazy. You now have just 3,000 full-time gamekeepers in England and Wales. And he was saying, you know, legislative reforms will doubtless be harsh. And you know, we will see a future of restricted rearing, restricted releasing, and possibly even restrictions on bag sizes, he thinks we might see. Um, so he says, you know, who would want to be a keeper now? But he thinks that actually it is profession that will have a future and it will just be something that evolves i was very interested to talk yeah, to I mean, dylan williams at the game fair um who set a business up now which uh identifies conservation jobs and finds gamekeepers who can do those while still doing bits of keeping and i've, I've actually had interesting conversations with dylan mm. um, you know is the word gamekeeper fit for the modern era is it should it be wildlife manager should it be conservation manager Officer. should it be something other because actually most of the time the gamekeeping element is quite minimal there's so much other uh, other activities that are part of the role 
um, that perhaps that sort of Edwardian um, gamekeeper persona is something that is from a bygone era. And, yeah. and you know, now it is more about um, getting your necessary licenses to be able to operate whichever piece of machinery, going and studying and understanding all of the different aspects of the day-to-day job, which which they have to do. Gamekeep- modern gamekeepers have to do that. So, you know, is the, is the name gamekeeper selling the role short, perhaps? Uh, I think is- there's also another really interesting point, which is that when landowners and farmers are trying to meet sort of conservation objectives with things like elms and so on. They need people to do things for them. They need people to lay hedges. They need people to dig up ponds. They need people to restore wetland. And you don't just have kind of old people knocking around anymore in the way that you know people once did, an old boy who could do a bit of hedge laying or whatever, or even actually young people who could do a bit of hedge laying for you. So, um, you know, there are a few gamekeepers I know who unfortunately have lost their job as gamekeepers and have become sort of you know conservation <laughs> professionals which is really interesting and i wonder whether we're going to have kind of as you alluded to dual roles where people are uh keepering and even keeping perhaps in a slightly more old-fashioned sense of the word so while bird keepering while also um sort of doing the heavy lifting when it comes to meeting conservation targets so i think it'll be really interesting to keep in touch with dylan on that on his new venture yeah so Simon, I think I remember the first decent knife I ever had was an Opinel, you know, which is sort of like 15 quid or whatever. But actually, they're very good for, for what they are. Um, I don't know. What, what do you like to use in terms of knives? I've got a collection of nice knives, which I would, wouldn't want to use because they're too nice to use. But my preferred knife of choice is a Scandinavian knife called a Mora knife. They come in an uh, injection-molded uh, high-vis orange scabbard sheath and um and the handle is bright orange so if you put it down on the grass you don't lose the grass, it you, you find yeah because it's one of those things that we all need you know whether you're whether you're fishing or stalking or even whether you're out shooting rabbits uh you know of an evening and you want to paunch rabbits in the field um and one of the things that i really like about st is that we get people to review kit who really know their stuff you know and i always say that with reviews, I quite often get a call on you know, Thursday from a manufacturer who says to me, I've read your review of our latest coat, and frankly, I'm furious. And I say to them, well, I'm really glad because, you know, when we say nice things about your product, it only actually means anything when we also say when we thought it was a load of crap. And this week, we've got Graham Downing, who's stalked for a hell of a long time and actually sells uh, venison at his local market. Um, so he's really sort of there using a knife day in, day out, reviewing mid-priced knives. Um, you know, and you he, can spend he's a huge the right amount. person for a knife review without question. Exactly. He is without a doubt the right person for a knife review. And we've got Richard Negus who reviews boots and sort of wears them day in, day out and goes out with his, his cousin on a fishing boat to, to test how good jackets are when they claim to be waterproof. His, his cousin's a fisherman in Lowestoft. So he's the man who does that for us. And Graham Downing is, is the knife review man. So I think it's just, it's really interesting when I mean, he says for sort of like 55 quid, uh, you know, you can get something that's very, very good. So, you know, I like the idea that that readers of ST read our reviews, read our rifle reviews, read our kit reviews, read our boot reviews, and come away knowing sort of how to spend their money wisely. And I um, think so we're very l- really- lucky on the ST to have such a stable of, of veteran countrymen and women yeah. who are able yeah. to use their experience, be sent products, and give an honest opinion about whether they think it's fit for purpose or not. And I think that's, you know, something the ST's been doing for a very long time, um, and people trust it for, trust it for honest reviews, which I think is really important. 
it's amazing how much Scandinavian kit we now use in this country. You know, yeah. I mean, the knives we use, um, you know, a lot of that stuff. And I have to say, as as Jules have done, you go to Scandinavia, you experience the climate, you experience the conditions, you experience the lifestyle, and you realize why their kit is uh, is so good. I remember a couple of years ago, I got invited there to hunt moose. It was November. And uh, I kind of packed in a rush and, and I just like, I grabbed some stuff from my cupboard, like a, a little pair of tweed breeks, a shirt, a woolly jumper, and uh, and I was off. And uh, it's about minus nine when we were there. <laughs> really, really, yeah. really miserable so experience. A, a rude awakening to Scandinavia. <laughs> yeah, so, so no, so that Graham Downing piece is great. And also actually just the rifle reviews that we have, sort of um, Bruce Potts on, on his rifle reviewing, you know, it's remarkable. He's been how, reviewing uh, rifles for the ST for a very long time. In fact, yeah. to ask him how what was his when was his first review? Well, I remember when yeah. Selena worked at the Mag nearly twenty years ago. Now uh, he was the de facto rifle reviewer, and yeah. what Bruce said yeah. went. You know, he he's got um, a major following, and he's highly highly respected in the world of rifles. And um, we're very yeah. lucky to have him still uh, still writing for us. Um, and putting out reviews very regularly for us. So um, Bruce is the man when it comes to rifles. Yeah. I've bought one or two rifles off the back of reviews that he's done, actually. Yeah, he's done. Well, I quite <laughs> often, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The power of magazines. I quite often read stuff from Field Sports Journal and then end up buying, um, I think, a pair of Brand Cost boots was the last thing <laughs> I bought as a result of an advert in Field Sports Journal. It's something about, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do really believe this, that when you're reading a magazine, you're in a buying mood. You know, when you're sitting on the back of a bus, I'm not sure how often you sit on the back of buses. I actually don't sit on the back of buses that often. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're sitting on the back of a gun bus, you see an advert. No, but you know what I mean? I do think people are in a buying mood when they read magazines. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we sell our content through our magazines, and there's a lot of free content online. But that's from, yeah. uh, if you like, not tried and tested sources. Uh, Bruce Potts has been doing it for, you know, 20 plus years, and people yeah. know that yeah. his reviews have credibility, and we pay him for the stuff he does for us. It's not free online content. This is stuff that yeah. is high quality. And I guess that's why people want to buy magazines from us because the content's high quality, including the reviews, things that people can trust. So I think that's, yeah. that's really And important. also, I mean, you know, Ed Coles, who's our car reviewer, right? He's a part-time mechanic, part-time gamekeeper. And like whatever we give him, he really, really put, you know, so if we give him a Porsche Cayenne or whatever, as we have done, he takes it out when he's feeding his pheasants. He really like gives it a proper doing and tells us how he got on with it um and that's i think it's terrific because of course anybody can go online and read like a porsche kn review but it's not really written by somebody who's actually living the same life that you're living yeah um you know so that's that's i think that's a lot of fun i'm trying to get trying to get him a lamborghini at the moment to take around on his feed round but they, uh, yeah they might not like that too much but um i think we've i think we have had um a car review their sports utility vehicle that they launched a couple of years ago we have had i think we gave we gave him a g-wagon not long ago he said it was his fastest feed round yet i don't know how is it is it feeling autumnal with you simon in edinburgh not i mean the the weather in edinburgh has been awful i know it's been pretty bad across the uk it's been it's been pitiful the edinburgh festival's just finished and i feel very sorry for them all actually because it's been gray and wet every single day so watching yeah. the tattoo would have been quite bracing i would imagine up on the 
um, ramparts of the castle. Um, uh, so yeah, it's been rough. I wouldn't say autumn's really kicked on here yet. I guess because it's been so wet, everything's still very green. Um, yeah. It hasn't been yeah. sun bleached, so maybe leaves will drop a bit later. But um, yeah, I do feel of- like I really like this time of year when you get that sort of first autumn light um because it, it means that we're going to start looking at our shoot reports for the season ahead and um, we've got all sorts of things we've got the walked up snipe stuff uh we've got some late walked up browse stuff uh, we're sending some people up to the hebrides to do various things up there and that's always really good fun just trying to find these interesting stories people kind of doing things on the on the fringes things that are a bit different and i think actually increasingly the things that people really want to do you know if you talk to people now who are selling grouse over pointers or whatever they will say to you those days just sell yeah Yeah, super quick i had a magnificent walk up on the 12th um i think last time i was on i talked about it but it was absolutely amazing and for me some of the best sport that i can have um and yeah you know it was it was it was magnificent really special special day good company sporting birds um you know they were fast the weather was horrendous but you know the, the birds got up really well far enough ahead that they were shootable but not so far ahead that um you know it was it was difficult to get after them so no it was it was amazing and and, and i love a physical day yeah um, getting out there and going and doing things so and i think you know as as the backdrop changes and we know of so many changes that appear to be coming those days are going to become more and more important and and yeah. it might be that those yeah. are the days that are available moving forward um they yeah. don't have any restrictions on them um, yeah you know, and, and, and well, I think it's really interesting as well in terms of uh, wild game and sort of, you know, making sure that people understand that the ability to shoot wild game only happens as a result of you know, conservation. At the Woodcock Club dinner this year, we've got Tim Bonner speaking. And, you know, I want to put it to him. How can we ensure that people are able to carry on shooting things like snipe, carry on shooting things like woodcock? You know, and I don't mean overshooting them. I mean, you know, how can we... Um, you know, fight for people's ability to conserve these species, to create habitat for these species, and then to harvest a sustainable surplus of these species. So that should be a really interesting conversation. And just remind me, what's the date of that? Are there tickets still available? That is the 14th of September. 14th of September. And and I think you can So if there's anybody listening to this who's a member, we would love to see you there. There aren't many tickets left, actually. Um, And we're also very much looking forward to launching our Shooting Times Woodcock Club Awards, which will reward woodcock conservation so so you know hands-on creating habitat for woodcock um you know we want to see the results we want to hear about the results and then we will hand out the award uh, at the woodcock club every year and and patrick just interestingly um if i were to take a sort of counterpoint to the woodcock club how, how would one defend the woodcock club in this era of wanting to uh, not shoot woodcock which seems to yeah. be many shoots now you know we'll we'll um choose not to shoot woodcock how how do we place the woodcock club in- well i think i think the thing is is if you're shooting woodcock week in week out at a driven shoot and it's you know the same bit of land give or take then you know you are disturbing the woodcock that are there um you know it doesn't take the world's greatest ecologist to realize when the woodcock have come in so you know so you don't shoot woodcock from the start of the season you know maybe you even just shoot woodcock after christmas um but you know if you go up to the isle of lewis or whatever you know you know when the woodcock have come in um the notion that resident woodcock are being shot out places like that just doesn't make if you've if you've got resident woodcock and you know you've got resident woodcock well then that's that's probably a different thing right um but but you know if you actually look at the science and that's what we're always told to do right look at the science there isn't evidence to support the idea that people shooting walked up woodcock is 
having any impact on the resident woodcock population in this country. And it's also, I mean, it's very interesting. If you really read into it, there's a lot of thought that woodcock actually weren't resident here until they started to leave blocks of woodland in East Anglia for driven pheasant shooting. So, you know, we're always told, oh, you know, it's those who shoot that are causing a decline in woodcock. Well, actually, perhaps historically, it was those who shot who caused woodcock to, to, to stay, to, yeah. well, to stay here. You know, yeah. they, they created this population. And, you know, I've sat there with people whose careers are built on making noise in terms of the decline of, of, of species, right, in terms of sort of conservation woes. Uh, and they always want to talk about woodcock shooting. They always say we should ban woodcock shooting. They know it's a divisive issue. Uh, they know it gets people's backs up. But the fact is, is that an ill wind over the sea could kill more woodcock when they're migrating than, you know, I as a, a sort of, you know, mid-tier shot would ever be able to shoot in my life as somebody who shoots woodcock. So I think, you know, we have to look at the science, right? And almost everything we've spoken about today, snaring, trophy hunting, uh, and now woodcock shooting, you know, look at the science. Yeah. Don't just just sort of, you know, go with kind of public will, because often public will, or, or rather public feeling isn't right. Uh, and, and, and more than that, you know, politicians and and sort of celeb conservationists should not use these issues to to try and create support uh you know and to try and create a splash because to do so is is just deeply deeply wrong you know and mm -hmm. you have to say often with these politicians or with these conservation celebs you know are they ignorant or do they actually understand the issue uh and they're just sort of exploiting public ignorance and and either of yeah. those answers are, are not are not happy ones just playing to the crowd I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, shocking. Trophy, trophy imports. There's such a small yeah. number of people that um, take part in big game hunting internationally. I guess it's an easy win and it's an easy thing um, for both parties to have a sort of, I guess, feel good factor with their constituencies around because they yeah. can yeah. paint a sort of pretty negative backdrop about it. But actually, no science was looked at at all. And yeah. in fact, yeah. lies were used, you know, science that was flawed yeah. or fabricated was used um to build the case to put their bill through which which it went through yeah the, the lords are having a look at it in a uh, scrutinizing it on the basis of science so yeah um, you know it's not done yet um and um but the wood yeah the woodcock one's really interesting and it's become a sort of it's become a very um popular thing among people who shoot to say i don't shoot i don't shoot woodcock anymore they probably you know after didn't actually shoot that many woodcock in the first place yeah but but yeah but, i mean how many shoots have you turned up on and they say we, we don't shoot woodcock on this shoot I mean, it's frequent for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's mainly driven shoots and, and yeah. sort of, you know, where they're shooting quite often. I don't shoot at those sorts of places that often. I quite often go to places to shoot woodcock, you know, and yeah. they will say there, interestingly, we don't shoot woodcock here apart from two days in January, and this is one of those days. You know, that's why we've gone. Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day, actually, who's a very keen member of the Woodcock Club, and he shot woodcock in the new forest for a very long time and he got a call i think last year to say that the the new forest were sort of saying no more woodcock shooting uh and he spoke to he spoke to a guy who works for the new forest and the guy said well you know look you can't shoot woodcock anymore but why don't you shoot squirrels there are loads of squirrels why don't you take your spaniels out and shoot squirrels because <laughs> i don't want to shoot squirrels i don't eat squirrels i don't you know my spaniel what, what would they do like how would they the spaniels work the squirrels and he said it just became clear that this guy had no knowledge at all and and really he thinks at the heart of it you know the new forest was just worried that there was going to be a, a headline you know new forest endorse you know the shooting of of, yeah. of red listed species or whatever and there's a 
resident of the new forest that we both know that's quite vociferous about um wood yeah, yeah. shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean he's spoken to me. He said, Why don't we work together on a ban on woodcock shooting? You know. And I said to him, Why don't we work together on a campaign for more turtle dove habitat on shoots? And I to this day I'm yet to hear back from the guy on that. <laughs> so I think that was a little too close to something that might bring people together, right? And that's not that's not in at the moment. So Yeah. No, we need more love. We need things that are gonna bring people to uh together. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that probably brings us to uh, to the end of this week's podcast. By the time we, we, we chat again, Simon, I think probably in a couple of weeks' time, I'm very keen to get some of the rest of the team on. The wildfowling season will have started. And I always think that the wildfowling season is kind of, you know, it's like Christmas for, for shooting times readers. Um, lots of them go out and don't actually shoot anything because there's not much to shoot, but it's it's the getting out and being there. Um, it's being there as the sun comes up uh, or indeed as the sun goes down. I think, you know, marshes and, and saltings are just, wonderful places to be i'm very much looking forward to getting out there this season uh, if you're not already a subscriber to shooting times do take advantage of our current subscription offer which will be in the show notes um i think you know staying informed at the moment is more important than ever and actually there are a lot of things that we all should be voting on um you know we're not going to tell you how to vote or how to think but you know the consultation on snaring is coming up you know putting putting your thoughts in there is really important um you know there's various things going on in terms of uh, changing firearms legislation it's very important that our voices are heard uh, and that these things don't just pass us by one thing so i this just is... want to add patrick is um uh, this is the third iteration of or third episode of uh, the shooting times podcast and i have to say the feedback so far has been very very positive um and if there's anybody listening to this that would like to give us any feedback or any comments on things that they would like being covered uh, on future shows then do let us know um it's available on youtube and on spotify and on apple podcasts all of which have the opportunity to put comments and uh, we would welcome them uh, as we do welcome letters uh, in the magazine and emails in the magazine so please do get in touch if there's other things you'd like to hear or see on on the on the podcast we always love we always love people getting in touch i have i have terrific friendships which started with somebody sending me a letter that you know they really hated this that i'd written or that that i'd written and i often end up calling them up and we have a long conversation <laughs> and stay in touch for a long time so you know for, for for better or for worse get in get in touch whether you love it or not get in touch um that brings us to the end of the shooting times podcast which has been brought to you by field sports press i'm patrick garbrace the managing editor of field sports press and i've been joined by the CEO of Field Sports Press, Simon Barr. Thank you.